0: Still still. There we go, everybody. Man. Welcome back to the Panel Scanners episode 189. <laughs> um, and in this is the top five of a conversation we had begun um a couple of weeks ago about our top ten most non or top ten non-traditional characters. It is characters that we have not spoken of routinely on this podcast. Uh, as always, this has been wide open for interpretation, and I think we've all had some very strange interpretations of it. Kenny McCormick from South Park has made an appearance. Uh, a couple of characters from Deadwood made an appearance. That made me jump onto my chair, as did Clint Eastwood. Neither of which were on my list. And Phil said something about anime. Um, alright, so let's get into our top five. But before we begin, does anyone have any caveats, any non-sequiturs anything they want to say to throw out there. Uh, my name is Darren, of course with me as always, although I've barely been here, is Gary Matt's here as well. Hello. Phil, thanks for stopping by. Make sure to come back when you can,
1: you know, whatever.
0: All right. So <laughs> here we go with our can top five. You
1: feel the love tonight? All right. Sorry.
0: Here we go with our top five. And well, for my number five, My number five is a character that needs no introduction.
2: Gary? My number five, uh, Firestorm from uh, DC. Uh, Much like I ended uh, my number six uh, from the last list, uh, Molecule Man, uh, you have someone who could just take anything and turn it into anything else they want. Um, I think the caveat for Firestorm is he actually has to understand the chemical composition in order to do it, but his changes are permanent, so... Um, that is my number five. Uh, I remember when he first debuted, I uh, actually got a couple of his comics back in the day and was, uh, fascinated with him.
3: Matthew, you're number five. Absolutely. Okay. My number five was a diminutive protagonist from a popular series called Game of Thrones. He was a political mastermind. He was a breath of levity when things got too serious. And the dude could just drink. That's right. We are talking about Peter Dinklage's portrayal of Tyrion Lannister. He is one of the most powerful characters, and one of the last people standing in the show, might I add. Spoiler. <laughs> yeah, that's yeah. about four years ago. I think we're good on that one. Uh, okay. Oh, you just—you
1: <clears throat> just inspired me.
2: <laughs>
1: oh no. <laughs> <clears throat> My number five. These are in flux. Is the titular character from Shirtless Bear Fighter? Shirtless, the dude fights bears. He gets his power from being naked. It, it is like such, me. It, it, no. it is such a <laughs> it's such a ridiculous comic. Uh, it's like an eighties nineties style action movie, but it's but it's a comic book. Uh, he's pretty unstoppable unless you make him put on pants. So like me. Remember. No. Ooh.
0: No, Gary, this is not a. This is not when you fail to hit past the ladies' tee in golf. Uh, no
1: lifestyle. Uh
0: cool. My number four. Space Ghost. Spa- part-time space adventurer, one-time space police officer, and the greatest talk show host in the history um, of talk show hosts. I don't even know wait. what else can be said about Space Ghost.
3: He does go coast to coast. He does. He's right up to Conan.
0: The surreal (laughs) brand of humor on that show, which is essentially just a series of uh, random thoughts and non sequiturs, and the episode in which he meets his father. And you guys remember who voiced his father? Do you guys remember who the voice of Space Ghost? It was Space Ghost, who was even more buff, With a gray beard. And he was voiced by Randy the Macho Man Savage. And it was so funny. And Brack. And this man. He will defeat you in battle. And then sit down and have a conversation with you. Although he won't be paying attention to anything you say whatsoever. He'll just go off on his own (laughs) tangents. I just. I remember watching this show. Late one night, I had the same experience, uh, the same feeling when I first saw uh, Mystery Science Theater 3000. Like, looking at the TV screen, going, what the hell is this? Like, not knowing, like, yeah, I had no preparation. Like, I remember, um, when I, or the first time I saw the Mystery Science Theater, Theater Theater 3000, they were in a, a um, a, a, a comedy sequence where the robots were doing an experiment and one of the robots turns to the camera and goes, And remember, kids, arsenic tastes like sweet, sweet honey. And I was like, <laughs> Oh my God. <laughs> what the hell is this? And, um, and then, like, it was, I don't remember the exact night, but Space Co. sitting over the talk show. And then Weird Al showed up on the screen and they went through, they had this back and forth. And I went, Is this what? what? I, I was so flabbergasted that my gabber was flasted. And. I w- it remained flasted for several days, and I remember like scrolling through Cartoon Network, waiting for this to come on again, having to know what am I watching, and I don't know if I'll ever have an experience like that again because we're so over inundated with information and trailers and all that. But just to just stumble across Space Ghost Coast to Coast was just mind blowing, and I-, I I have a DVD. I got to find of that. It needs to come back, and I. I don't need him to win the fight. I need him to have Thanos or Vader or someone or the Joker on the talk show to just completely confound them. That is my number four. Gary.
1: Nice.
2: My number four? Miracle Max. The man can bring the dead back to life. Well, I'm sorry. The mostly dead back to life. And who knows what else? He, he, he can do miracles. That was his job. So, my number four from The Princess Bride, Miracle Max.
0: Oh, right, right. I was a little
3: confused. confused. Matt? Well, this man went on a warpath to get back his wife, befriended Dr. King Schultz, and saved his bride-to-be, Brunhilde. Hilda. That's right. Gentlemen, the D is silent. I'm going with... Django, Django Unchained, 2012's uh, revenge thriller with uh, Jamie Foxx. Again, bit of a recency bias. I did just sit down and rewatch this movie not that long ago. That's a great movie. And does it still hold up? It is still funny. And that scene, and and now granted it doesn't have uh, Django in it, but the scene in which they are trying to decide whether or not to wear the masks might still be the funniest movie scene I've seen in a very, very long time. (sighs) Are you talking about The Mandalorian? (laughs) Wrong Django. Wrong Django. Sorry. The mask could have been done better. All right. Gentlemen, Bill, number four.
1: Number four. Soon to be a movie star, Mr. Mario Mario. Come on. He's a plumber who can shoot fireballs, can jump super high, somehow fight a giant turtle man. And stomp on mushrooms.
0: And gets a full-body erection.
1: He does get a full-body erection. I'm still convinced those video games are just somebody on a giant shroom trip. But Mario does show some power for a stereotypical Italian plumber. Um, For some reason, this was one of the first people that popped in my mind when we were thinking non-traditional, super powerful people. And Mario's just there. And Mario's been around for a long time. So number four... Mario. Oh, and tomorrow—tomorrow
2: tomorrow is his day, too. By the way, Mario
0: Day—is it really? Yeah, uh, March 10th. Yeah, except this isn't March 9th, buddy. Yeah, Sorry. way, way to go with that recency yeah, bias. You're, uh, you're, you're, the you're calendar a late wait, wait. To that. You don't know how to read a yep. calendar. No, it. All right, shit. Yeah,
1: editor, uh, editor.
0: <laughs> what am I, Mark? Um. All right, now we're into the top three, and uh, if there is a tiered system, your top three are your single most powerful characters uh, that you think, and I, and again, I process this as people I'd like to throw up against some of the top tier villains and my number three is sort of uh, I was glad that you brought in Dave Grohl as one of your numbers because mine is an actual real life person too and that is Shaquille O'Neal is my number three, while not a character per se does anyone seem to enjoy life more than the seven foot one gentle giant Genuinely funny, and by all accounts, a lovely and caring human being. He's gotten to the status of, if you don't like Shaq, you are the problem. Um, While we never truly know celebrities of his caliber, I feel fairly confident that his body of work shows that it is reasonably safe to look up to him literally and figuratively. Let's just take a look at his nicknames, or at least the top ten of his nicknames, Of which there seem to be no end, no human in history has had more nicknames than Shaquille O'Neal. The Big Baryshnikov, the Diesel, the Deep Freeze, Superman, in references to his year playing with the Cavs, the Shaktus, the Big Shamrock, the Big Aristotle, Mayor McShack, the Big Galactus. Um, The man's charitable donations are too numerous to count, and some speculations are that he's already given away over half of his fortune. But that's not why he's on the list. His power is that Shaq seems bound and determined to complete every side quest that life has to offer. Everything from Deputy Law Enforcement Officer, which he currently is, Shark Researcher, Shaka Claus, he's conducted the Boston Pops Orchestra, he's a touring DJ, he's a part-time MMA fighter and pro wrestler, general manager of multiple minor league teams, he helped bring Amazon and Netflix to life as well as multiple other products ranging from headphones to security cameras... Uh, so, so here's some essential moments where Shaquille O'Neal has demonstrated his power. The man literally wants to save the world. And if anyone can do it, I would not count out Shaquille O'Neal. But for context of our podcast, one moment on the transcendent inside the NBA sticks out. And by the way, inside the NBA over the last couple of years has sort of uh, become widely accepted as the greatest in-studio sports show of all time. Gary... I was out in front of that by about 20 years, wasn't I? No, yes, you were. Um, In one moment, Shaq very justly criticized the play of then Philadelphia 76 forward Ben Simmons. Shaq correctly pointed out his shot selection and poor passing. Simmons very vocally took umbrage to his criticism, lashing out on social media, saying some some not-so-nice things. Some not-so-nice things about Shaquille O'Neal. When Shaq was presented with these comments from Simmons on Inside the NBA, he paused for a moment, very casually remarked, What's he going to do about it? To which the rest of the host, Ernie Johnson, Kenny Smith, and Charles Barkley went, Yeah, what you going to do about it, Ben? I'll tell you what you're going to do. Not a dang thing. <laughs> um, this was How this has not been memefied is beyond my comprehension. I can't help but envision Shaq standing between Thanos and the last Infinity Stone with that look on his face and looking at Thanos going, What you gonna do about it? And cut to a scene with Thanos just walking away. Same with Darth Vader and those Death Star plans. Why isn't he the rebel holding that going, What you gonna do about it? (laughs) Uh, Shaquille O'Neal is just, he's just such a likable guy and he's genuinely funny. And inside the NBA was already a great show with Charles Barkley, Kenny Smith, and Ernie Johnson. And it took a while. Shaq was really struggled. But he has become the highlight of that show in spite of everybody else. So Shaquille O'Neal, my number three. Gary? Shaquille O'Neal? Shaquille O'Neal.
2: <laughs> my number three. Okay, now think of anybody. Any any superpowered being as tough as you want. Well, this little pink amoeba comes along and swallows them, and now their powers are his. I'm referring, of course, to Kirby. The little pink video game character. Um, on his own, not much. But uh, all it takes is a little uh, vec suck action, and uh, <laughs> whatever you can do, he can do better. Uh, Kirby. <laughs> what? What? <laughs> this what this episode's this, getting he X-rated. Inhales. He had... inhales. Takes on the powers of whatever he eats. I wish I could... Well... No. I just really don't want the powers of pizza. Never mind. Kirby is my number three. Most powerful non-traditional character. Matt, what you got?
3: Alright. Well, I got a character who is smarter than most. Absolutely ruthless. has been betrayed by multiple people. And I actually am going to make a controversial opinion and say that I believe that Mads Mikkelsen did the best version of Hannibal, the Cannibal Lecter. He is arguably one of the most powerful individuals in uh, media in the last probably, what, 30 years, went since Anthony Hopkins portrayed him in 1991. Uh, but, of course, we had the Hannibal show, and that's really the one that I kind of refer to the most often as my favorite piece that uses him, is the Hannibal show on NBC, a show that I'm still amazed was allowed on regular broadcast television right? at 10 o'clock at night. Um, but nonetheless, they were able to get away with it. The character is amazing in that show. Again, he outsmarts even the most smartest of individuals. Most smartest, as I said. Uh, as well as just being absolutely ruthless and loving uh, liver, liver farba beans, and a nice Chianti. Hannibal Lecter is number three. What number three?
1: Um, I have some recency bias, as Matt has pointed out for a few of his. Mine is the human humanoid typhoon, the sixty billion double dollar man, Vash the Stampede, from Trigun. Uh, Wait, wait, wait! Did you say the sixty billion double dollar man?
0: Okay, and then not Steve
1: Rogers, not Steve Rogers. What? What was after that? The humanoid typhoon, Vash the Stampede.
0: Vaj,
1: the Stampede. Vash.
0: Vash. It did not sound like that. Your mind,
1: man. Where are you You're at? You're the
0: one that started with uh, titular, non-shirted
1: people. No, 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 no. Shirtless bear fighter. <laughs> which is okay. Um, uh...
0: Vag the what?
1: Dash. <laughs> Dash. This is your, uh, your lack okay, of Okay, from it. Trigon. So go ahead. <laughs> Trigon, Yes. Uh, incredibly well-known uh, anime, because I don't get to talk about anime much on this show. Um, there's a new uh, series running, uh, mentioned briefly to Mark, who, who is here who could at least back me up a little bit. Um, <clears throat> Vash is uh, a bit of a pacifist with a gun uh, that he, he can stand toe-to-toe with whatever, basically, and it's just all about trying to make everyone else happy. Um, and the original show used to scream out love and peace quite frequently. Uh, so that's my number three. I won't say it again because Darren's 12 years old.
0: <laughs> oh, God.
1: Because he has a dirty mouth.
0: I wasn't there until you got me there, man.
3: That's what she said. Oh, that's,
0: <laughs> that's a really oh, good open. No, no. Yep. Phil everybody got me there,
3: explicitly. everybody.
0: Veg the lesser. I don't even know what it was. <laughs> oh no, I'm not gonna be able to finish. That's what she said.
1: <laughs> Darren, we've kept it together with you gone. You know this, right? You've done such <laughs> a great <Michael> job.
0: <laughs> oh my God, you guys have done so well. I don't know what's happening. I am. I, you're right. I my contributions have. Oh, God. Where are we, number two? Was number, it me. Number two, Gary. Oh, I'm not going to make it through this.
2: Uh, oh. That's what she said.
0: No. <laughs> Gary, also not
2: helping. Oh, no. It was fun watching him trying to catch his breath.
0: He's
1: oh. so red right now.
0: Oh, I've missed you guys, man. Woo. Breathe, man. Breathe. Look at Matt. Matt's, like, totally stone-faced over there. I don't know,
3: like, he's I'm probably being dude. interrupted by a four-year-old over here. Oh, so, so he's got to mute this. Yeah, so Actually, yeah. being interrupted by two four-year-olds. I got my four-year-old, and then Darren, of course, is going <laughs> to <out.
0: laughs>
3: <laughs> <laughs> oh. woo!
0: my number two. Let's see if I can make it through this. It's not looking good. Um, well, my number two epitomizes it's better to be lucky than good. His exploits are too numerous to count. He is seemingly never out of his element, though I am not sure in what element he would belong. He's broken up an international spy ring, a plot to assassinate the Queen, a plot to divert the nation's energy policy, and multiple organized crime rings. He did so without ever being aware of the true plot behind any of these conspiracies. In fact, he seemed to happen across most of the clues along the way, while pausing to admire beavers. To say that he's mastered all forms of disguise would be false. To say that he fell into being a waiter, a lounge singer, a boxing promoter, a major league umpire would be more accurate. His undercover turn as a locksmith, presented among my most favorite moments in television and film and comedy, <laughs> so subtle, yet so brilliant. So when infiltrating subtle, a, so a mob boss's hideout, by, a mob using boss's keys, hideout by using the keys... Are we getting a reverb here? Are we getting a You
2: just here? went double time. Harry should mute.
0: All right. Uh, that sounds better. Okay. When infiltrating a mob boss's hideout by using keys that he was asked to reproduce, the mob boss was heard to remark, Who are you? How did you get in here? Actor Leslie Nielsen delivered the most deadpan of remarks. I'm the locksmith, and I'm the locksmith. Gary, unmute yourself. How would this man yes, how would this character introduce this himself?
1: Character
0: introduce himself? Oh, God. oh forget it. Matt, do you know? Oh, it. Matt, do you know? All right. I'm Mute. drawing a blank. Mute yourself again. Mute yourself again. <laughs> Lieutenant Frank Drebin, police squad is my number two powerful indeed how can you defeat a man who routinely gets by on sheer luck yet conducts himself with the confidence of an easter island statue yes from police squad the naked gun from the files of police squad and other sequels which whatever heads up though this is being rebooted with a new actor playing lieutenant frank drevin and i'm not joking about this The reboot has gone through several iterations, directors and multiple comedic actors from Will Ferrell to John C. Riley, Paul Rudd to John Hamm and Ed Helms, and more. None of whom possess the dramatic gravitas the immortal Leslie Nielsen brought to the role. Leslie Nielsen, as we all know, was a dramatic actor for most of his career until Police Squad. So I was 1,000% against this are we all 1,000% against this? The answer is yes. However, as of October 2022, The Naked Gun has been greenlit and currently in production with Seth MacFarlane as the director. And I am 1,000% on board because, and this is official, he is cast Liam Neeson as Lieutenant Frank Drebin Jr., it is a straight sequel to seemingly only the first Naked Gun. I'm all about that. You got the most, the actor with the most gravitas to take on the role. Not a comedic actor. Brilliant. If it's going to happen, that's how you do it. That's my number two.
2: All right, I am now unmuted. This man, my number two, can pee his name in concrete. He is the only man that I am aware of that the dark is afraid of. His tears cure cancer. Unfortunately, he never cries. He has won a game of Connect 4 in three moves. He builds a snowman out of rain. And when he does a push-up, he pushes the earth down. I am, of course, referring to the one and only Chuck Norris. I don't know how non traditional he is, but when you're talking the most powerful, I really don't know how you can go wrong with Mr. Norris.
0: After that, I don't know why he's not everyone's number one.
2: Oh, he's also my number.
0: Oh, never mind.
3: <laughs> Matt! <clears throat> All right. Well, this gentleman is an accomplished assassin. He was uh, targeted by his own government. Uh, He's the main character of four movies and portrayed by two separate actors yet again. Uh, And he spawned a variety of memes, not least of which is just uh, David Straythorne staring into the camera going, Oh my God, it's Jason Bourne. That's right, Jason Bourne is my second most powerful non-traditional character. Of course, uh, Matt Damon uh, is the one who portrayed him most famously, uh, with Jeremy Renner doing it in a forgettable movie in 2016, but that doesn't really matter. Uh, But yeah, Jason Bourne. That guy is amazing, and like I said, I'm sticking with characters for the most part who have no superpowers, but certainly are more powerful or more intelligent or more capable than most. Jason Bourne is my number
0: two. Jeremy Renner wasn't Jason Bourne, though. Wasn't he from the same program?
2: I thought, I thought that you know, I, I don't think he was Jason. Bourne. It was Moore. the Born Legacy or something like that. Yeah, yeah. He
0: wasn't. The, he wasn't playing Jason Bourne. I don't think. I read the books. A couple of the books, the first three books, and I loved them. Robert Ludlow. Um, Dennis Miller, had a great line when Robert Ludlow passed away. He was friends with him. He said, "And Robert Ludlow, master of suspense, died." Matt is laughing. You mute yourself when you laugh. All I can hear
3: is uh, just Hans Molman saying Robert Ludlum for some reason. I don't (laughs) know why they keep on popping laughing. But I don't remember that
1: specifically from the series. All right.
3: right, Number two.
1: Number two. Uh, Another one that you guys won't get, which just bums me out. But uh, um, Ren Amamiya from uh, Persona 5, better known as Joker. I know the Joker. from, not that Joker, uh,
0: from um, the from Top Gun, what? From
1: Top Gun? No. So, uh, Joker of the Phantom Thieves, uh, Persona Five, being one of the best JRPGs to be released in recent memory, uh, literally controls the personas of whatever he wants, <clears throat> um, and the whole like. of the story that is the game is him being interrogated by the cops in which he can lie to them straight-faced while he's telling a story about him basically breaking into a bank. So, a very cool character, very strong storytelling. Um, And if you like a JRPG, Persona 5 should be on your list. So that's Ren Amamiya. That's his actual name. That's your protagonist, known as Joker, when he's a Phantom Thief.
0: You know, Phil, you're right. You know, Phil... Gary, you have to mute yourself
1: again.
0: Gary, you have to mute yourself again. You know, Phil, you're right, I didn't know them, but you did such a good job, I feel like I do now. Sure, sure. All right, we are rounding second to third. Now we're headed for home. The number ones, these are the top guys who are so powerful and yet somehow we have not spoken about them on the podcast to a degree in which we have given them their just due. Now, I'm going to go ahead and say, good luck defeating mine. My number one is a master of machine, man, and nature. He demonstrates his prowess with machines by being able to manipulate any and all machines. Sometimes it takes the form of restorations, hacking. Other times a swift boot or elbow is all he needs to get the machine to function. He demonstrates his power over humankind, By forming a league of loyal subjects, those that hang on his every word, his mastery over the female of the species has no peer, as he is often seen with women under both arms, a slight snap of his fingers, beckoning them to his side. He demonstrates his mastery over nature by confronting the largest (coughs) of predators, both land and aquatic, Seemingly never out of his element, he can take control of multiple species at once, silencing them with a simple cool it. He has mastered even dimensional time travel by quickly repairing an alien girl's time machine, then hopping all throughout history with Cupcake, Mr. Cool, and his friends. <clears throat> I contend that my number one would make short work of Thanos, Darkseid, Vader bring whoever, It matters not, unless, of course, you bring Pinky Tuscadero. If you've not figured it out, feel free to sing along when you do, because goodbye, gray sky, hello, blue, because nothing can hold me when I hold you. Feel so right? It can't be wrong. A-rockin' and rollin' all week long. My number one is Arthur P. Fonzarelli, a.k.a. Fonzie, a.k.a. The Fonz. You may know I'll bask, In that glory.
2: It took me a few minutes to figure out who you were talking to. But once I figured it out.
0: I was talking to you guys.
2: Who you're talking about. Excuse me. All right. My number one. And I have to go back to comics. Because this was my number one from the start. Um, Not someone we've really mentioned a lot. I'm referring to Dr. Jonathan Osterman. Uh, better known as Dr. Manhattan. Ooh. Um, the, the, the guy does everything. Um, omnipotent reality warping, time manipulation, telekinesis, uh, subatomic perception and control, healing, immortality, flight. Uh, I, I mean, he does. He, he is like everything, everywhere, all at once. I, I know that was a movie. But basically it basically sums up Dr. Manhattan. Um, <clears throat> I don't know a lot about the character. I never read Watchmen. Um, but I know of Manhattan and I know what he is able to do. And I really don't know if you can get uh, much better than that. Dr. Manhattan is my number one, most powerful, non traditional character.
3: Absolutely, that was a good choice. Okay, my number one is definitely going to be a deep cut for me. I don't know how many of you guys, I think we've talked about this show before on here, but never this particular character. Um, All right, he was a notorious stick-up man in the show that I watched, Uh, although he operated by a code in which he would only fight drug dealers and never the innocent civilian. He managed to uh, do also just carrying a large-caliber handgun and a shotgun. Wearing a bulletproof vest and uh, portrayed by an actor who had a massive facial scar on the center of his face. He somehow managed to turn whistling Farmer in the Dell to feel somewhat ominous, sparking civilians and folks everywhere in Baltimore to say Omar's coming. That's right, folks. I'm talking about Omar Little portrayed by Michael K. Williams, the late Michael K. Williams from HBO's. Long run show. I guess not long run. So it was a long time ago that it ran, but from uh, 2002 to 2008, uh, The Wire. So I'm picking Omar <sighs> Little as my most powerful non traditional character.
0: I used to run a website, Matt, very briefly. Gary was remembers this. And uh, I used to do my favorite shows and movies and favorite characters. And I just gave the Omar Little award for favorite character because I like, no one's beating Omar Little. That's the greatest character in television history,
3: by far. Even former President Barack Obama said that that might actually be one of the most complicated, most interesting, powerful uh, characters ever to be portrayed on on uh, television. With the exception of Fonzie. Yeah, of course. Well, I mean, I'm sorry. I, sh- I thought that went without saying. But yeah.
0: Well, yeah. I mean.
3: All right, Phil.
1: Here's wow. guessing that your last and final one is going to be something from anime. Well, my number one is a master of friendship. And karate for everyone day man fighter of the night man champion of the sun at least matt's laughing at this he gets the reference hey, Dayman
3: one more time so i can be your backup singer
1: Dayman, man oh. uh so <laughs> <laughs> this is honestly an audible pull for me because it came to me and i was like well there's no way there's no way that Dayman, Fighter of the Nightman, the boy whose soul was sold by the troll, could not be the number one most powerful non-traditional character because he is the champion of karate and friendship for everyone, Dayman.
0: If he's truly the champion of friendship, he deserves all of our number one
1: spots. It's true. It's true.
0: Except for Fonzie. (laughs)
1: So that's my number one, Dayman.
0: (laughs) Well, there's our top five. So there you have it. Uh, Not sure what to make of it. It was what it was. Uh, It was fun. (laughs) So once again, our number ones are Fonzie, uh, Dr. Manhattan, Omar Little, and Dayman. So we're going to form a team of those four guys to go up against the Avengers and the Justice League. And I got to tell you, I like our chances, to be honest with you. Um, <clears throat> there's a comic book cover for you right there. I want to see when Carolyn Johns puts out, uh, those, um, covers that you're supposed to do for comic book day. I want to get one and I want to draw those four characters out there, put it out there just to see people go, what the hell is this? <laughs> um, uh, all right guys, that was a lot of fun. Uh, let's never do it again. All right. Let's move on now to the noest of no sections in our podcast. And Matt's got a retroactive review, a, uh, a, a bit of a different take on the retroactive review, which is what we like, um, mainly because uh, less work is involved. So Matt, take it away.
3: Absolutely. So uh, you guys humor me. I appreciate this one. I'm going to be retroactively re- reviewing the 1994 movie, The Crow, based off of james barr's a uh, short-run comic book mm-hmm. series that took place in 1989 uh i kind of want to throw this out to you guys a little bit with just basically talking about the state of comic book movies in the 90s so when i say comic book movies into the 90s what are you guys what are some of the images that pop up in your brain first where what are the movies that you're thinking of i mean
1: like batman there you go uh spawn Sure. dick yep. tracy yep Absolutely. Rocketeer.
3: What were you going to say? The Rocketeer. Oh, yeah, good call. So, yeah, obviously, we're coming off the successes of Batman and Batman Returns. uh, But as we know, for every solid film in the uh, superhero pantheon, there was a Batman and Robin. Uh, Later, as you guys mentioned, there would be Dick Tracy. And that was certainly a phenomenon, but not what many would consider both a critical and or box office success, given its enormous budget for that time period.
0: The Phantom The Shadow. Sorry. Like
3: you said, could be Disney's Rocketeer, Judge Dread. The I'm kind of shocked actually it became a franchise but Blade, which was good. Like it just was good. Um however, comic book movies obviously failed to get off the ground for the most part, uh until later a little bit into the twenty first century. Uh, again, for every success story that we found in the nineties, there was a barbed wire, huh. shadow, the phantom. I love the phantom Steel, Played by uh, Darren's third most uh, powerful non-traditional character, Shaq. That's right. Uh, and Spawn, as Phil pointed out, which is a movie that I think was a left a lot of people wanting. Oh. Uh, yeah. Anyway, uh, we would still be a little removed from the successes of the X-Men series, which began in 2000, and of course, Sam Raimi's Spider-Man that started shortly thereafter, and what seemed like light years away from what would become Marvel's cinematic universe, starting with Iron Man in 2008 which changed the game entirely. The Crow, uh, starting in 1994, was a movie that was released uh, from a fairly small comic book that was done primarily in black and white and given to a director whose claim to fame up to that point was directing only music videos. That's right, that's all Alex Proyas did before he took on the helm of The Crow, something that seems both quaint and nearly impossible in today's musical scene that is the music video and obviously i think something that seems pretty quaint in the notion of handing over intellectual property to somebody who hasn't done really much of anything at that point um the crow was something of an anomaly it did relatively well uh based on its tiny budget certainly compared to today's standards the movie cost 23 million dollars to make and raked in over 50 million dollars almost exclusively domestically in fact when i looked at box office mojo uh, for doing research for this one it cleared over 50 million dollars u.s domestic and made barely over $1,000 worldwide. Anyway. Wow. It managed to be, <laughs> isn't that kind of crazy? I found that was pretty pretty crazy. But yeah, it was primarily just an American phenomenon. Uh, it managed to be both a commercial and critical success with a meta score of 71, according to IBMB, and was certified fresh with a critic score of eighty-four on Rotten Tomatoes. Additionally, it spawned a mini-franchise, leading to several failed sequels and an equally unsuccessful television show. Even with it becoming a small enterprise in and of itself, the movie had managed to cement itself as a cult classic. Uh, Its cult status is primarily rooted in the fact that it had impact on several groups, such as Goths and the neo-noir scene that would kind of take hold in the 90s. Now, the film itself, we don't necessarily need to do uh, a recap uh, over here, but I'm going to go ahead and do it very, very briefly. We, of course, have our protagonist, who is Eric Draven. Draven is obviously a callback to Edgar Allan Poe and the American Gothic period of the late 19th century, uh, and his fiance are murdered on All Hallows Eve or Devil's Night, however they wanted to call it, which was the day before Halloween. And of course, this takes place in a mythical version of Detroit. Um, the, his soul is returned to unsettled, or I'm sorry, his soul is returned to himself to settle unfinished business, and he's carried through these areas by a crow. Uh, as he travels through the world again, it's still unclear how he gets his powers, what they're even tied to, but that doesn't matter, and the reason doesn't. I mean, that's not really the point of the movie. In fact, they waste no time at all talking about it. They just let it be. And that's actually one of the best parts about it. With an origin story, they didn't feel the need to go through several films just to get that origin story. Don't get me wrong. I enjoyed watching Steve Rogers become Captain America. I certainly enjoyed Tony Stark becoming Iron Man. And we all love the multiple versions of the origin story of Spider-Man. Uh, but I love about this is it kind of harkens back to the original Star Wars series in the sense that it doesn't bother to explain to you how the Jedi get their powers. It they just are. The force just is. And it isn't until nineteen nineties movie The Phantom Menace that they even try to explain that at all with the Metaclorians. This movie doesn't do that. It just allows the character just to just be powerful. In fact, his his powers are kind of hard to understand entirely. Obviously, he can heal himself. Uh, he is going to be essentially immortal in that situation uh, and really just seems to be on a path to settle the wrongs that were done to him or right the wrongs that were done to him and his bride-to-be. He goes through a series of mini bosses with fun names such as I mean, it's Tintin and, uh, uh, oh goodness, I'm forgetting some of the names that they have, but they are ridiculous, uh, and basically he goes through them one by one. Uh, he says some biblical-type stuff, and it rains a lot a lot a lot uh john wick fans of course will be enjoy re-watching this film and it'll probably feel a sense of familiarity because basically what it is is just a revenge action movie for the better part of an hour and a half we get to the final scene and i know i'm really really glossing through this movie here because i want to get to some other things here for you guys um but it uses uh michael wincott who i feel is probably one of my favorite villains just because of that voice alone it measures it in an extremely low uh, octave, which is amazing to me. And he just has this kind of menacing character about him, which I thought was uh, was amazing. And, of course, he must battle him at the very end. Uh, they have that amazing scene where he gets speared by a um, gargoyle, and the blood comes rushing out of the gargoyle's mouth, again, as it's raining cats and dogs out there. Uh, you throw in a little bit of heroin, a creepy relationship with a very attractive half-sister, and we have ourselves a good old-fashioned gothic romp through that heavily stylized version of Detroit. Now this is the part that I have to kind of mention too as well with regards to the um, the overall impact of the film itself. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention that there is a shadow hanging over the show, uh, and that is of course uh, Brandon Lee, who when filming was pretty much almost done, rumor has it that he was much of a perfectionist and wanted to redo a scene. Well, they didn't clear one of the guns properly, and uh, they loaded up a gun with a blank already installed in there. And unfortunately, when that happened, the pressure pushed the bullet out of the gun, and it impacted. Brandon Lee and of course he was shot and killed when we look at the overall cultural impact of the crow I think the crow led to an enormous amount of other films because here we have this movie that really didn't have an enormous audience in fact I think if I'm not mistaken the original uh, comic book only sold about a quarter of a million comic books so it wasn't like it was a massive success although it was not nothing for sure but uh, we look at the overall cultural impact this is definitely one of the movies that uh, in terms of comic books is one of those ones that you have to kind of mention especially when we when we talk about it sowing the seeds of what would later become comic book movies. Some articles I read in preparation for this actually considered it the best comic book movie from the 1990s. I think that's a bit of a stretch. But it is certainly one of those ones that gets to be mentioned, if not in the top five, then certainly in the top ten. Uh, for Halloween, for years afterwards, you would always have those people, typically dudes, who would try to dress up as Eric Raven because they thought that it might be cool. And this was, of course, captured in South Park's episode in which the devil has to throw himself a theme party. So it becomes uh, fodder for the uh, the jokes and whatnot. Um, Last but not least, this also brings about the discussion of what we have, which is the soundtrack. Now, I know for me that this was one of the most important soundtracks that I ever owned in my life. Of course, we've got the likes of Nine Inch Nails, Massive Attack, the Rollins Band, we've got Violent Femmes on there, we've got The Cure, we've got... Arguably one of the most popular songs from a movie with Stone Temple Pil- a movie in the 90s, which is Stone Temple Pilots, uh, Big Empty. Basically, what I wanted to do now, guys, is I'm going to stop the discussion there. I'm going to stop the recap there because this is a movie that's 30 years old. For the most part, a lot of people have seen it. As I mentioned before, with its cult-like status, it gets aired on TBS and TNT. At least you used to be constantly, maybe not so much anymore. But certainly one of those things that everybody seemed to have in their DVD collections back when people collected DVDs. So I want to talk to you guys a little bit about the state of comic book movies in the 1990s and how we think that might have impacted comic book movies in the 21st century. And, of course, talking about some things, like I said, that are kind of quaint and a little bit antiquated with this notion of a movie soundtrack. So, guys, just kind of opening it up to you a little bit and wanting to have this discussion, how do you think movies like The Crow and and obviously Batman and Batman Returns impacted comic book movies, and why was there such a lull between what we could consider to be somewhat successful films in the early part of the 90s from a comic book perspective, maybe a couple of blips here on the radar, but really was an overall disappointing run in the 90s. And that isn't until we get to the 21st century, that we start to see some movie successes. I'll open this up to wants to answer first. So why do you think that was just out of curiosity? What do you think that says about the state
2: of comic book? Movies? Am I able to unmute now, or am I still
3: messing things up? If you talk just by yourself, you're good to go.
2: Okay. Um, I think it had to do with the fact that it was such a small press book, and then once people started looking at comic books as movies, they went for more popular characters because they were trying to reach a wider audience, and then the budget got bigger, and they had more people to impress, and they just couldn't make everyone happy. So I think as long as it stayed as a smaller fan base, they could probably make more people happy with it. I don't know. I think the bigger they got, the harder it was to uh, come up with a winner, I guess.
3: That's fair. I guess I'm just trying to think of, like, you, you look at these movies like Batman, like I said, Batman Returns. Obviously, Batman is in the late 80s, but Batman Returns. And then you have a movie like The Crow. How is it that we go from those kinds of movies and we end up with the you know a series still... of flops in the Batman series, as I mentioned before, with things like Bob and Barb Wire and the Phantom and things like that, that were kind of critical and and box office failures? I just I'm trying to figure out how we went from relatively successful movies at the beginning of the '90s from a comic book perspective into what ends up being does.
0: Um. Well, part of the problem was I, I I'm trying yeah. to remember. <laughs> The Crow, the source material, um, they had the freedom to not... They weren't burdened by decades of uh, continuity in canon. And it was such a strong source material, the comic. Uh, have you read the comic, Matt? I have not. Nope. Okay, so, a plug. I did a retroactive review of this, Phil. We had, you and our original co-host, Johnny, had a real long discussion of us. It was episode 7 all the way back in November 2012. I, that does not feel like it was 10 years ago to me, um, over 10 years ago to me, but yeah, so we, we did talk about this a long time ago. It probably warrants revisiting, but the source material was so strong and the black and white nature of the comic sort of lent itself to the, the look of the production, which although it wasn't black and white, it almost was, um, and the performances were subtle and small and it was like, I remember thinking, cause this is now we're Batman return in a post batman returns world where this is what a batman movie should really look like we hadn't actually gotten to the neon nippled suits yet that would come the following year um but I remember us thinking like this is yeah and there were some real batman like moments in there um but I just don't think hollywood knew what to do and I don't think they viewed that as a superhero movie uh, rightly so so it's, it's interesting, interesting that you bring that up because there was a couple of others around there that very much were colorful, uh, these spectacle-like movies that were far less successful from a storytelling period and are all but forgotten. But this one sticks around. This one stands the test of time, and it holds up just fine. Um, Brandon Lee's performance is fantastic in this movie. And I remember thinking back then, I didn't think he was capable of something like that because... Um, the movies he were in before were suspecting quality, let's put it that way., um, Brandon Lee, the son of Bruce Lee, so he had that legacy. And the martial arts in there aren't really martial artsy. they' it's more he's doing a lot more, uh, you know, he, he's not he's doing some, but not what he was capable of. So I, it's I think it's it's a time capsule and I think it's a a touchstone movie for a whole subsect of teenage and early people in their early twenties who were sort of looking for an identity. Um, and I think this movie gave it to them. And I think the soundtrack did too. The soundtrack for me was tremendously influential because most of my high school years, I was more of into R and B and, uh, pop rock more than I was like that grunge, uh, the the in the subcategories of and then it was as I grew into you know my junior and senior year I started liking Pearl Jam I still like Van Halen and all that and Rush but then I started liking Pearl Jam and Stone Temple Pilots and uh, My Life with the Thrill Kill Cult which is one of my favorite songs off the album I remember them and um so a tremendously influential soundtrack one of the more memorable ones that I can think of you know singles would be another one i would think of from that era i just had this movie on the tip of my tongue ethan hawk and winona Ryder. what is it
3: oh uh shoot the ben stiller movie
0: what, reality what? bites Oh yeah, um, yeah reality bites was another one and i just think you know, like you were you, you're i mean for sure. someone who's a fan of music like that your best bang for your buck were soundtracks back then
3: well, And that's in it for me in the soundtracks in the 90s and Phil, and if you want to add to this discussion as well in terms of I don't know if you bought soundtracks in the 90s or not, if, I know you're just a notch younger but not too much younger. But like for me, buying a soundtrack was an opportunity for me to be introduced to. of course, you'd always typically have the big one or two songs that were on the, the one by, uh, by an artist that you recognized or something like that, but it was a way to actually discover uh, musicians and, and things like that in bands that you might not have actually ever heard of in, in another way.
1: Yeah, actually, I mean, at that time, especially like you know, early mid '90s, I was super young, like you're talking, not even a teenager. So, I wasn't really, <clears throat> I wasn't really like you know, buying a ton of stuff like that. Anyhow, I was spending my money on other things. I just really would catch whatever was on the radio. Um, I did want to because I didn't get a chance to mention the like popularity of of something and just like the way the movie itself was. Um, The Crow versus, like, you know, your Batman and all those other things. And I think it was the marketability of who they were were aiming the film to. When you have something that it's getting to the point that you're trying to go to the general populace and kids, you get your Batman and Robin when it's more of a not well-known property like The Crow. You're going to get something darker and something that you can do more with. So it's all about the mainstreamness of it. And, I mean, it's the same with the soundtracks, too. Like, um, the soundtrack for The Crow is very much for the people that would go see The Crow. While you're getting, like, a Batman movie that has, like, Seals Kiss from a Rose on it. You know what I mean? Like, there's a popularity uh, mix to them in both of those ways.
0: I think I understand what you're saying, Phil. Like, the, the Batman movies and the Seals Kiss from a Rose and that those had nothing to do with the batman movie they're like oh this is part of our marketing scheme whereas in the crow soundtrack no those songs belonged in that movie they helped set the tone for the movie um they're in the movie a lot of them could be heard playing in the movie um and it it's part of the story i still remember seeing the trailer for this movie. I mean unfortunately we, we knew about it. Because of the death of Brandon Lee. So this right. wasn't something that was going to catch us by surprise. And I do wonder. How much this movie would have. How much of an audience this movie would have had. If. Without that tragedy. Which is you know sad to think that way. But I remember whether or not. The, the, I remember a debate. Whether or not the movie would ever be released. And there were a lot of people that thought. That it should not have been released. Um, in fact, uh, Eric actor, uh, we all all recognize Ernie Hudson, uh, was in the movie playing the police officer. He was very vocal thinking that movie should not be released. Um, but you know, I think Matt, you said earlier that he was pretty much almost done with shooting the entire movie. There were some shots they had to, I, which I believe now that I think of it were very early CGI touch-ups. To help finish this thing off, because I think was it Touchstone Pictures? Maybe I was trying to look this up a second ago. That sounds that sounds right. Um, they were they were very satisfied with the movie and thought they had something special. Um, in terms of how it influenced other movies, which was your original question, right, Matt? How did yes. it influence? Well, I think you said it. Um, I think it's still influencing movies. I think it's probably brought up a lot. With which direction are we going to go with this? Are we going to go the crow, very dark, very gritty, or is this going to be a more traditional take on a superhero? I think that they did, and 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 this is speaking in the nineties. Um, and it, it, my love for Michael Keaton's Batman aside, they did Batman better than Batman did. Um, that you know, and I think that it still influences these movies, as you said. John Wick. Um, There's a reason it's never truly made it back. Um, Because, and I think it might now be, you might have hit upon something, the soundtrack is such an integral part of that whole movie experience. And I think you could probably make a Crow movie that's just fine. But I don't know where you find that element in today's, unless you just go back and use music that is from a different era um i think that's such an integral part of the story i think it's a companion piece whereas sometimes it's just let's get a bunch of top 40 songs in there and make some money i think this is a essential part of that movie experience
3: no i think you're absolutely right i think the the director that they chose had a particular vision and it kind of carried forward into the movie that he made afterwards with dark city I think the soundtrack, like you said, it's a, it's a bunch of artists who kind of fit into that particular spectrum as well. And then obviously you're talking about a particular time period where goth was still going to be, you know, popularized and in, in, into, you know, just a little bit more accessible and things like that. So I think it certainly is a, an amazing time capsule of that particular uh, portion of life in America, you know, during that time, and certainly for me, having been in high school at that time. Uh, and all those things kind of mixed together, and and those amazing things. I guess it's just interesting to see like what I thought was a pretty good start to the '90s in terms of like comic book movies. Why we got this lull in the latter part of the '90s, and I know that's not entirely fair to movies like Blade and things like that, but why we had such a lull, and why it took a little bit uh, for the better part of a decade before movies like that kind of really started to take off. And and not to not that like I said, Spider Man didn't wasn't successful in the early 21st century. Obviously, it was. It was very very successful. And uh, it probably led to those other movies being created. Just food for thought. So I was just tossing it out there for you to well, ask you
0: guys. Building off what you're saying, it's almost as if like that comes out and they're so taken a surprise by it. Like they learn the wrong lessons from that movie. Don't they? They think, Oh, everything has to be dark and gritty now. That's what people want out of comic book movies. So when you come out with, you know, something like the captain America movie where he was in his trench coat and all that, you're like, that's, you're taking the wrong lesson the crow exists in that realm captain america does not spider-man does not um it's it's and then i think that oh it made a million dollars it made a bunch of money off the soundtrack well it had to have that soundtrack your movie just like i mean i'm sure i bet you spawn has a soundtrack i'll bet you um
3: very 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 popular soundtrack (laughs) did it really I'm sure oh, I it was, that one too.
0: Yeah, I bet it was nowhere near as good as the Crow soundtrack.
3: Um, it's, it's
0: pretty good, is it?
2: It's, it's a lot of like rock electronic mixes, a lot of a lot of pairings. I own it.
0: Okay. <clears throat> um, well, let's just say the soundtrack may have been good, but that movie did not match the success of the Crow for sure. Um, I don't know. This is such. I feel as though, in some respects, we are not... This could be an entire episode. Like, dissecting the crow, looking at the... I don't even remember. I remember us talking about it on the podcast, the comic. I don't remember what we were saying. I'm sure it was, you know... I I still... Like, there's scenes in that comic that, when you read them, they're right there in the film. And I know a lot of people are still upset about that the comic didn't really translate to the film which i completely disagree there were scenes you were not going to be able to get into the movie especially in 1994 um or 93 i suppose you'd say when the movie was being produced but it's interesting that you bring that up matt like how does this influence i think you'd have to put this in the top five most influential comic book movies and i would say if you're going to talk about that you're not counting anything from the last 20 years you're going back maybe from superman the movie and i'd say blade would be the cutoff point right because that's almost in a way the unofficial start to the marvel what would become the marvel cinematic universe that's kind of how i process it so i mean i might even put it up there in a way outside of superman the movie maybe number one, maybe two or three as one of the more influential comic book movies to come out of that era in terms of what informs that which is being made today.
3: Very good. Well, thank you guys for humoring, humoring me and uh, being willing to kind of lend your ideas and thoughts about the uh, the impact of the film and, and the state of comic book movies at that time. And of course the uh, the lost art of creating that soundtrack, which was. Nothing more than a bunch of producers and movie makers uh, putting together their playlists, so.
1: Oh, right. I mean, (laughs) the the closest thing we got was, what, Guardians of the Galaxy? That had, like, a a solid... Yeah, I'd
0: say recently that'd be the one that seems to at least be integral to the storytelling of the film, right? I mean...
3: Look Smart did the same thing, that comedy uh, with Jonah Hill's little sister uh, that had a wonderful soundtrack also that really captured the energy of the show. But,
0: yeah, yeah, that's... boy, oh boy, you really brought... That's, I didn't kind of even think about how the... I, I've been thinking a long time how the lost art of movie posters, like all the movie posters is just someone's face making an expression, or... And and the, the movie poster art is gone it's it's just completely it's like all those marvel movie posters are like vomited collage photos and some of them are really good and some of them are butt-ass ugly um but the lost oh, art, oh, excuse me the lost art of the movie soundtrack boy man you really hit upon something here that's a wow
2: the I, last I, action hero was a really good one too yeah the guy was surprisingly good too
0: yeah well uh who's wrapping this up is it me uh, doesn't yeah. matter i can i can hit it on the way out All that's right.
1: fine um man seriously thanks matt that actually may have spurred a uh whole episode of conversations of snapshots of film um really to comic books and kind of the influences uh i mean it was it's it's really cool to think about uh so yeah um that considering you said no to a retro review nice work um we can uh, keep that rolling going forward. What are we keeping rolling? You know, retro reviews that are good.
0: Oh, you think? It's only been doing it for yeah. 10 years. You're right. You know,
1: it's a thing. We've been doing it for 10 years. You know, that.
3: I vote no, but you guys know where
1: I go. <laughs> actually takes your vote. Anyway. Uh, it was good seeing you guys again tonight, man. Really it was. It was fun as always. I'm glad we uh, had a questionable top 10 list and talked about the crow. <clears throat> Anyhow, uh, do you guys have anything else? Are we uh, we're pretty pretty solid here? Cool. So uh, as always, you can follow us on Instagram. Please let us know what you are feeling. Maybe let us know your feelings about the crow and if it was influential to you. Um, maybe give us a couple of your non traditional heroes uh, or I guess powerful people. And until I guess April. Enjoy your comics.